What happened when people encountered Jesus? One thing is for sure, no one stayed the same. Skeptics, outcasts, politicians, and religious leaders alike all had strong reactions to him. Some walked away, but some believed. And in those lives, we see the hand of God filling in who they were meant to be. We see the rough outline of their lives given color and shape and form and made into something altogether unique and new and beautiful. No one who ever encountered Jesus was ever the same. For each one, it all started the same way. Meeting him face to face. Yeah, good morning and welcome. So glad to see you. Just one small clarification. You know, when, um, when John says the word dungeon, we don't literally have a dungeon. Those of you who are new, it's, it's what we affectionately call the unrenovated space on the other side of our facility. That's, we've begun construction, although I suppose if your children misbehave, you know, in promised land, we can make an exception for them. So just kidding. Uh, we did start construction on three new classrooms back there. Congratulations to all of you for having so many children. Uh, making that possible. So a couple things before we, we get into our time in God's Word. This is actually an exciting time to be a part of our community group structure. Our groups are going throughout Austin over these next couple of weeks and putting boots to the ground and flesh on the bone to our words. Uh, that We don't just talk about what it means to serve God, that we demonstrate this uh, in, a, in a real and tangible way. I know one group yesterday went out and served a, a local single mother that's not a part of this church and did some extensive landscaping and yard work and internal house repair and all those kind of thing. So many ways to put actions to our words. This is one of them. Also, next week, and finally before we begin here, uh, we're beginning a new series next week called Counterculture. We're going to be looking at what it means to live, give, and love differently. And next Sunday is the kickoff for that. And actually, next Sunday, and I'll, I'll say this often, is actually going to be one that you don't want to miss. It's one of my favorite Sundays of the whole year. We're going to be doing something really cool and super fun next week. That's my Southern California wife influence come out on me. Super fun. So super fun is next Sunday. That's the theme. We're going to be doing something amazing together as a people asking you to be here next week. You can witness it and be a part of it. All right. So now this morning, we come to the end of our face-to-face series. We've been looking at encounters people have with Jesus in the Gospels. And we're coming this morning to one of the most astonishing encounters, honestly, that any person's ever had with God. And it's the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, or Paul the Apostle, a Jewish Pharisee, who, because of what happened to him in this passage, he quite literally changed the world. And so you may know Saul's name was later changed to Paul, so if you hear me using those words interchangeably today, I'm not actually confused. Uh, It's the same person. Uh, I guess I may be confused about other things, but that's not one of them. All right. So here we go. Our scripture reading is going to be on the screen, or you can look in your Bible. It's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up. And go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. 
So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, for a generation that's been raised to be skeptical of all things pushy-sounding and pushy-feeling, for a generation who gets nervous when Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or even the nice ladies from First Baptist come to the door, the word, the very word conversion is grating, maybe even galling. The idea that someone would need to be or ought to be converted is at best smacking of relational insensitivity, or at worst, cultural imperialism. In other words, the only kind of conversion that most of America believes needs to take place is this. It's conversion away from the thought that anyone should be converted. The artist John Meyer summarized this thought when he's saying, he's saying, belief is a beautiful armor, but makes for the heaviest sword. And what's he saying? He's saying belief, in the end, hurts people more than it helps them. It's like a sword in the end. There's no belief we like less today than what the Bible lays out, that the human heart needs to be, must be converted. You may not like that, but actually the most loving, caring, sensitive, gracious, humble person who ever lived, the person of Jesus, said this in Matthew 18. He said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does, let's ask now, what does Christian conversion look like? Hmm? What does it mean to encounter Jesus? Put it like this. It means to have everything you ever thought about anything turned upside down. Say it again. It means to have everything you ever thought about anything turned upside down. Let me show you what I mean as we pull out three elements of the conversion of Paul. We're going to look at, number one, what it means to be on the ground. Number two, how Paul went against the goads. And finally, how he moved into grace. Let's begin here. Number one, as we read, Paul was on his way to the city of Damascus. Why? Well, he was sent by the leaders of Judaism in his day to go there, most scholars to believe, believe, to put an end to Christianity once and for all. After the death of the first Christian martyr Stephen, two chapters earlier, a massive wave of persecution broke out against the early church, and a high percentage of Christians, is believed, relocated to Damascus and had set up a growing underground church that, because of Damascus's geographical location, made it an ideal place for Christianity, the gospel, to move in and out of. And so Saul now had been sent to put it down, to put an end to it. And as he's way to do that very thing, as he's on his way to Damascus, something happened to him. What was it? 
Well, a light began to flash. A voice spoke to him. Paul fell to the ground. What's going on? Well, whatever it was, this right here, you have to see. This was a tipping point in the history of the world. Some small pockets of skeptics today will still try to argue and debate and try to prove Jesus never existed. But no one debates that Paul existed, that he was a committed Pharisaical Jew, that he was a leader of his own faith in his day, and that something happened to him. No one debates that. That something interrupted the course of his life, the whole trajectory of his identity. So what could compel him? Think about this. What could compel a man like this to give up everything he'd ever been taught? Hmm? Everything he ever believed? What could have knocked him to the ground like this? Well, the easiest and simplest explanation is this. That Paul simply met the real God. He simply met the real God. See, the God he had constructed, right? The God he had imagined ceased to exist and something real, something actual shook his life. Hmm? Now, let's just put this in perspective here. While most of us today will not construct a God like Paul constructed in his day, no one will construct a severe, remote, strict, austere God. Most of us, many of us in our culture, do the same thing today, just in a different way. In 21st century Western culture, we construct this kind of God. We say this, that God, if he exists, must be purely, sheerly a God of love. He accepts everything and judges nothing, right? Now, as apparently different from Paul's God, that that may appear, in reality, it's no different. How so? It's like this. That God that we imagine today is just a construction of an extension of what one culture has decided at one moment in time is the way God ought to be. Today, for example, we love the parts of the Bible that talk about love and forgiveness, don't we? And those are exciting. We love those stories. We hate the parts about sexual integrity. The idea that God could say we're actually wrong about anything we do or ever believe, right? Now, on the other side of the world, by contrast, millions of people love the idea of justice and judgment day. They love what the Bible says about sex. Matter of fact, they probably believe it doesn't go far enough. But they hate, they loathe a God who would actually bleed and love and die for his enemies. What's really going on here? What's going on is that people tend to reject God out of their cultural moment and create a God out of their personal preference, right? But here's the problem with this. If you, if someone, if I, if I make up a God, right, who's not real, that kind of God, he can't help you. If the God you imagine, catch this, would never judge you, lets you do what you want when you want to, that means you're bigger than that God, right? You're bigger than that God. And therefore, any problems, any challenges you ever face are too big for that God to handle. Too big for that God to handle. What happens when you go through the trauma of a job loss, the death of a loved one, the end of a dream? Hmm? A God that you've made up, that someone's made up. A flimsy God of only acceptance, the wiffly waffly, wibbly wobbly God. Can't rescue you, can't deliver you, can't empower you, can't change your life because God forbid you may need some changing, right? But a crunchy God. A God with teeth, so to speak. A God who's real. Therefore, you didn't make up. And is therefore, thank God, nothing like you or me, praise the Lord, can do just that. And that kind of God, the real God, the all-existent, all-sufficient maker of the universe, is who Paul meets right here. 
And how, now let's ask, how does someone know? How does anyone know they've met the real God? Hmm? Well, look what happened to Paul. The text tells us this. Simply, he fell to the ground. He fell to the ground. He can no longer stand, can you see? He's knocked off his feet. What does this mean? Well, what's going on with Paul here is actually what happens to every person in the Bible when they come face to face with the glory of God. When the priests dedicate Solomon's temple in the Old Testament, the glory of God comes, the priests hit the deck. No one can stand. When Isaiah meets him in the temple, he says this, I'm undone, which means this, I'm coming apart. Ezekiel, when he sees God's glory, he falls face down like he's dead. Peter, when he realizes who Jesus is, just who he's dealing with in reality. Peter says, go away from me. I'm sinful. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when trained and hardened Roman soldiers come to take Jesus away, Jesus flexes a bit, releases his glory, says, I am God himself. Soldiers fall down. Why? No one who ever comes face to face with God in his glory ever stays on their feet. And this is what Paul's encountering here, the glory of God. Because what's the light here? Oh, the word in the Greek means literally light from the other side. Astro light, literally. I've got no way of describing it. This is God's glory here. Paul's got no more ability to stand than you or I would if we were in a stream of water whose power rose exponentially. See, in the presence of God, no one keeps their footing. And once again, this confronts, maybe for many of you, the modern paradigm of what church, faith, religion, anything ought to be about. We think faith and spirituality ought to mean inspiration. Now, I like inspiration. How many of you guys like inspiration? We like inspiration. Great. We like nice, warm, hallmark, fuzzy, pastel-colored church. Great, right? So you may, th- you may read this passage. You think, oh, yes, Paul's having a nice spiritual experience here. Listen, is that what you think's going on here? This wasn't wonderful or inspiring for Paul. This is traumatic. What happened to him? He's knocked to the ground, and for three days, he's blind. Any of you want that? Man, I want to know Jesus. No other name. Take me there, Lord. Blindness. Marcea Eliada, the name may be coming back to you from Philosophy 101, was a Romanian philosopher. He helped coin the term the Mysterium Tremendum, which means this, the terrifying mystery. He did cross-cultural research into people's experiences and encounters with the sacred, with the divine, and what he found out was this. It's fascinating. He found out that people who only had superficial encounters with God or the divine did come away feeling inspired and warm and fuzzy. But people who came the closest to the divine, the sacred, the holy, were completely undone. They were traumatized, forever changed. This man wasn't a Christian. He was just documenting the facts. Now, why is this? Why does this happen? Well, it's actually not too complicated to understand why, and therefore what's happening to Paul here. And what it shows us is this, that we all come in with fragile identities. If you're from, for example, certain families, maybe conservative family, conservative part of the country, your identity is based on this. I'm a good person, right? Then how can those bad people do those bad things? My parents raised me to be a good person. I just don't understand. What's really bad is doing bad things. I don't do those things, therefore I'm a good person. Well, what's that, right? A form of footing, of standing. It's moralism. This is what makes me good. Now, on the other hand, if you're from a more secular family or part of the country, what's the self-image? I'm a good person because I'm tolerant, right? Accepting of everyone. How can people not be tolerant, right? What's really bad is intolerance. I accept everyone 
except for the people who don't accept people. Therefore, I'm a good person. What's that? Oh, just a variation on a theme, another kind of footing. It's just the other side of the coin. We're good people because of this. See, what keeps us on our feet in life is whatever we build our lives around, right? Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's our beauty, our talent. We think, I'm a good person because of the way I live. But when people actually meet God, they realize they can't stand on anything. There's a kind of darkness that sometimes comes in Christian conversion, a disorientation. Why? Oh, because we're seeing now for the first time goodness itself, love itself, perfection itself. And this is what happens just on a smaller scale with people in your life. You know, I used to think of myself as a warm and caring person. And then I met my brother Galen Washington here, an elder in this church, who's never met someone he couldn't hug and love into wholeness, right? Yeah. I used to think I was fast. I was a former college athlete. Then I met Pastor Brett Milliken, who now at 30, whatever he is, 30, he might as well be 45, I mean, for all you know, because the ageless wonder here, but I used to think I was fast. He makes me look like I'm in slow motion when I'm even about to blow a hammy out, you know, trying to sprint. I used to think I was a smart person. Then I met Dr. John, who's got like 17 college degrees and diplomas and if I'm here for, here's the point, if I'm seeing myself accurately and I'm seeing them accurately, I don't think, oh, I'm really caring, or I'm really smart, I'm really fast. I think, no, away from me, away from me. See, away from me. And if we feel like this in the presence of people, how much more in the very real presence of the person of God, see? Do you really think you'd be able to stand if you met God? If you've never lost your footing before God, if you've never fallen to the knees of your heart, see, if you've never gone to the ground in the inside or the outside, you've never met him. He shows you've never been converted, changed. Paul has to become blind before he sees. He's got to be plunged in the darkness before the day can dawn on the rest of his life. Has your self-image, catch this, it's a hard word, been shattered by the weight of God? If it has you can wait for the right person to marry. Not fall into temptation. If it has, you can humble yourself before your spouse, your wife, your husband, and love them, forgive them as they ought to be. Why? Because you've got nothing else to stand on. Not your righteousness, not your identity, not your behavior, not I did this, she did that. If it has, if your identity has been shed up, you can put down the video games. God, I almost just cussed there. <laughs> video games. And be a man. And cry out to God. Open your Bible. Ask him to use you to change the world. Maybe second service. You'll get lucky. I don't know. <laughs> See, Paul goes to the ground here. He goes to the ground. That's the first point. Now let's ask, what brought him to this moment here? Hmm? What had been going on underneath the surface in Paul's life on the inside? Because, if we'll read carefully, Paul's conversion, Christian conversion, like the birth of a baby happens in a moment, but it's been growing actually underneath the surface, see. So what had been going on with Paul? Number two, he had been fighting against the goads, against the goads. Now, this passage actually doesn't record it here, but Paul later in the book of Acts gives his own version of what happened to him. At that moment, the flashing light came to him. He's on his knees. Jesus came and spoke to him, and this is what he said. Jesus said to him, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's 
So let's ask, well, what's a goad? All right, A goad was a sharp stick used by ranch hands by shepherds to get cattle or sheep to move in the proper direction. As you may know, sheep aren't the brightest animals on the planet. Actually fairly stupid, fairly helpless. The food, you bring them is over here. They want to go over here. The cliff of instant doom is over here. And yet they won't go over here to safety. There's a, you know, they, they need to be sheared of the wool that grows over their eyes. It would keep them, actually, if they don't get the wool sheared, of course, they'll go and fall and lie down and they can't get up. But they violently object to being sheared. So what communicates best with the sheep? A goad. In other words, to lovingly save a sheep's life, sometimes you've got to poke it hard with a stick. And here Jesus has the audacity to say to Paul, Paul, I've been inflicting a kind of pain on you in your life to get you to go in the direction I want you to go. He's saying, in other words, Paul, I've been goading you into my kingdom. And let's ask now, what were the goads of God in Paul's life? What were the goads of God? There were at least two, I believe, the Bible points to two. They were this, the Tenth Commandment, and the first martyr. And both of these, if we'll see them properly, will be goads for our hearts today. All right, the first one Paul talked about later, it was this, simply the 10th commandment. Now, this is going to get complicated for about two minutes. Hang in there. I ask you to use your brain power. Paul's stuff is challenging sometimes, all right? Over in Romans 7, in a really complicated passage, Paul said this. He said, once I was alive apart from the law. He was saying, I was alive. Oh, I felt good about myself. I liked who I was until I really saw what the law of God was all about. See, Paul, like many of us, built his identity on being able to be good. And pretty much for him, it meant obeying the first nine commandments, which on the surface he could do, many of us could do. First commandment, have no other gods before God, right? You think, okay, cool. I'm not worshiping an idol. I'm safe. Don't murder. Check. Haven't killed anybody this week. Honor my father and mother. I can do that. I'm good. But now, even though Jesus said, don't read the commandments like that, people still do, Paul did. But now the problem, see, the thing that goaded Paul was the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is for us, for him, is sort of like that horror movie hand that reaches up out of the ground and grabs you just when you think you're safe. Why? What is it? It's this. You shall not covet. See, not an external behavior but an internal motivation. Don't covet. This doesn't just mean don't wish you had your neighbor's house or boat or TV or spouse, although it does include that. To covet means to desire something so deeply. Now, you're discontented. To covet means to long for something so much, now you're unhappy with what you have or who you are. And Paul looked at the 10th commandment and realized this. He realized that if that was true, he should never feel discontent at any moment in his life. That God ought to be enough for him at every single second. And because he felt a lack of contentment in his life, he said, now, the commandment sprang to life and he died. The commandment sprang to life and he died. He means his whole identity unraveled and unspooled. What he had built his life on, which was being great at being good, now was gone. He's falling apart. And now that's why I believe he was actually doubling down on his persecution of Christians. Think about it. When an athlete's career is falling apart, right? 
His identity is being shaken. What does he do? Oh, he doubles down on effort, on practice, on competition. Why? To restore who he is. When an actress's career is fading, what does she do? Well, she busts her tail to get that part that'll bring her back to the top, right? And when we are falling apart on the inside, what do we turn to? Whatever our God is. Whatever will help us stand. And what is that? Well, for the athlete, right? It's his performance, career, business person. Maybe your money, your success. For the actress, it may be applause. For Paul, it was his morality. And the 10th commandment slayed him. And it slays all of us, if we're honest. You say, man, this sounds awful. Man, outdated, you know, regressive. No, no, no. It's actually brilliant. It's brilliant. If God's really real, And he's the thing your heart really needs. He could do you no greater service than to slay you with the 10th commandment, than to goad your heart by showing you just how deeply you need him. Now, pop culture writer Cynthia Heimel, one of my very favorite quotes, she wrote in the Village Voice a few years ago about this very idea without knowing it. She's actually almost just quoting Romans 7 here without knowing it. She said this about celebrities. She said, quote, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. The morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame that I thought was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, it happened. And nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. Then she said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. Are you struggling today with self-worth, a lack of contentment, in a sense, good? That's the goad of God. See, pushing your heart toward himself. He's not going to play the rotten practical joke on you of allowing you to have everything in the world, but yet forfeits your very soul, see? That's the first goad. Second goad of this wasn't the 10th commandment, but the first martyr, a person, a man named Stephen, who was put on trial before the Jewish ruling council for preaching about Jesus. Stephen gives a long speech recounting Israel's history. He summarizes it by challenging the people around him to receive Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. They don't. He's executed, stoned to death. And now Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, includes this detail about the story. He says, meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named who? Saul, yeah. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. See, the first time, did you catch it, that Paul, Saul, is ever introduced, it's at the killing of Stephen. See, Paul, the name Saul, he would have been a Pharisee. He would have been in attendance as Stephen gives this speech, which, by the way, is the longest single speech or sermon recorded in the book of Acts. And what many scholars believe, see, is that this had seared so deeply into Paul's life and conscience. Years later, he was able to recount it. And then these moments later, when he watched Stephen die, forgiving his enemies, those two moments, Stephen's sermon and his sacrifice became a goad in his heart. See, how could a person die like this? Saul would have been asking. How can a person forgive and love like this? Only if what Stephen said was true. Only if Jesus was who he said he was. See, Paul, in a sense, became Stephen's first and only convert. In Stephen's life, in Stephen's death, Paul saw the gospel lived out, though Stephen never knew it. Though he never knew it. Let me ask you now, Christian friends, with that in mind. Is your life goading those around you? Is your life, the way you live, pricking, poking, unnerving 
the people around you in your life. Let me give you a few examples, a few questions. Let me ask you. Does how you do your job every day show people Jesus is really alive? Hmm? Do you show up on time? On time. Whoa, that's tough for some of us. With gratitude in your heart for your job. Do you do it with excellence and integrity? Looking to make such great products or give such great service. People know Jesus has to be real. It becomes a goad for people. They ask, why do you work so hard? Why are you so passionate about this? Oh, Jesus is alive. Therefore, I must. Let me ask you. Does how you raise your children, parents, show people, show your children even, that Jesus is alive? A couple of years ago, my son's baseball team actually left him off the all-star team because we said we were not going to miss church to play a game on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. And listen, that was tough. He had earned the spot. I was angry. He was sad. Listen, I know if he plays in college, a professional one day, Sunday mornings are a different conversation. But newsflash, he's not in college. He's eight years old. We're not talking about pros. We're talking about eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds. You say, you only did that because you're the pastor. No, I did it because I'm a Christian. Because I'm a Christian. Jesus has called me to love his church, place its needs above my own. Listen, I don't know if he'll remember his lessons in promised land from those weeks. But I do know this. I know he'll remember the sacrifice he made for Jesus and how it showed him the clear distinction between our values and values outside our home. See, is Jesus alive or is baseball? Hmm. What's more alive in our family? It's up to me to show him. Next, does the excellence and intimacy in your marriage goad people, show them Jesus is alive? Men, uh uh-oh, meddling. Do sports and fantasy league teams dominate your life in weekends? So much so your wife feels like a leftover until morning, you know, Monday morning rolls around. Oh, it's awfully quiet. Women, do you, is how you encourage your husband, love him. Show him Jesus is really alive. So much so you've got to lavish affection on him. See? Does your commitment, next question, to the church of Jesus, does that show people around you Jesus is alive? Listen, the average American Christian, nobody in here, goes to church once a month, isn't involved with anything outside Sunday morning, and gives less than 2% of their income away while they live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world. Listen, that's not goading. That's blending, see. Do our lives goad those around us? Are we like Stephen, so full of the Holy Spirit? Our faces shine even when we're in trouble. You don't think that ministered to Paul? It did. These were the goads Paul resisted, but of course it's beautiful, not for forever, right? Because what happened to him in the end? He changed the world. And where did it begin? Finally, let's look at it, number three. The same place it begins for all of us. By moving, number three, into grace. Into grace. Let's see how the story ends. It says, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right. After Paul is blinded, he wanders around the city until he finds residence at the house of a man named Judas. And now God sends this otherwise unknown disciple named Ananias to minister to him. And despite being deathly afraid of Paul, Ananias goes. And this is what's so beautiful. Did you catch what he called him here? Huh? He called him brother. Brother. The same man who surely days before would have put Ananias in prison, see, is now being called brother by Ananias. And then what did he do? It says he placed his hands 
on Saul. See, he's doing what the Bible calls the laying on of hands, which isn't spooky or weird. It's simply the act of identifying with someone else, of putting yourself in their shoes and standing with them. It's a way of saying, my strength, my peace, my grace passes into you and become yours. My brother, you will receive as I give. Now, where do you think Ananias and these early Christians learned to do this? Hmm? You remember if you were here last week, what Jesus said to Mary in the garden? He said, don't hold on to me, Mary, right? Go back and tell my what? My brothers. I haven't gone back to the Father yet. He says, who? My, my brothers. I mean, he's calling these disciples his brothers. You mean the same ones who fell asleep in the garden, even though Jesus pleaded with them to stay awake? Oh, you mean the same ones who swore they'd be with him in the end and turned around and cursed the very person who had rescued them? You mean the same group that sold him out and betrayed him? Yes. What does Jesus call them? The very ones who hurt him. He calls them my brothers. My brothers. How could he say this? hmm? How could Jesus extend this kind of grace? Here's how. Because he wasn't just in darkness for three days. He was in the ultimate darkness. As he was crucified, the Bible says, the darkness fell over all the land. This was the infinite judgment of God coming down upon him. And he wasn't just knocked to the ground. He was executed and put in the ground in a tomb where he didn't eat or drink for three days as his life paid the ransom note to forgive Paul, Saul, you, me, and all the other traitors. See, Ananias could extend grace to Paul because Jesus had extended it to him. In Charles Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, the story is told of two men, Sidney Carton, Charles Darnay, and they both love the same woman, but she marries Charles, rejects Sidney. They start having children and a family together. But this is set during the French Revolution. And Charles Darnay is taken into prison where he awaits his execution. And the night before he's executed, Sidney Carton, who actually looks a bit like Charles, sneaks into the prison. He says this. He says, Charles, you've got a wife. You've got a children. Let's trade places and you can live. Charles says, never. So what does Sidney do? He smacks him over the head and knocks him out cold. He puts his own clothes on him. See? And Sidney, the free man, has his peace pass into Charles. And Charles, the prisoner, has his punishment pass to Sidney. See? And then people take out Charles so he can live. And while he's awaiting the execution now in the prison, a seamstress comes up to Sidney and thinking it's Charles, she begins to talk to him, ask him questions, and, and Sidney looks away, hoping she won't notice him for who he really is. And her eyes get wide when she realizes who it is, and she says, are you dying for him? And he says this, yes, and for his wife and children. She says, stranger, I have been feeling I will not be able to face my death, but if one so brave and loving as you holds my hand, I think I will be able to make it. And Sidney goes to his death uttering these words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. See, because Sidney experienced the substitution, the sacrifice of Jesus, he could die in another's place. And now the seamstress could look to that sacrifice and be strengthened in her pain. And now Paul, in the same way, for the rest of his life, looked at Jesus dying for him, being raised to life for him, and was able to pass on the grace he received to us, the church. Let me ask you this morning, Has Jesus become Lord of your life? Hmm? Have you been converted? Not a popular word. Have you lost your footing before God? 
repentant of how you've tried to live apart from God. See, in Christianity, can you see, weakness leads to strength. Falling down leads to standing back up. Blindness leads to sight. If you'll receive it in the end. Let's pray this morning as we close. Father, we come in Jesus' name this morning asking you, Lord, to minister to us, change us. Lord, many of us, our hearts need to be converted for the first time. Lord, you've been goading some of us through a friend inviting us, something we've seen, read, or heard, listened to, a discontentment that's been bubbling up. Lord, I'm praying for these here. They would realize that's actually you, actually you, speaking to them, touching them, moving them towards your heart. If you're here this morning and you've never become a Christian, never crossed the line of faith, you said, today's my day. I see Jesus as the Son of God. I want to serve him, repent of my sin, and love him. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. If you're here and another way you can you can feel and sense God's goading your heart to allow you to see how much you need him. Maybe there's discontentment. Maybe you see there's a lack of fire or passion in your life. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. Lord, I disagree with these. It's just hard to kick against your goads. They don't move. We do. Let those things move us now towards loving you, holding on to you, falling to our knees, losing our footing before you. Lord, sometimes the most beautiful truths are difficult ones, but yet we embrace them today. They're in your word. They're for us. Thank you for them. Lord, I pray for grace for these as they seek to love you, serve you, grow in you more in Jesus' name.